Well, good Sunday. Good New Year's. Well, good January 2nd, I guess, because we're into January 2nd. 2022 is upon us, and uh, hopefully everybody's going to have a great year ahead. Uh, my name is Charlotte, and I'm going to be your reading host for the next hour. Usually I don't have a mic in my face doing this, but this time, because I've set this room up differently, this is what they're, this is what it is. So anyway, I want to welcome everybody. We're going to give everybody a few minutes to get into the reading room. And I want to have some water here because it's really dry in here. And uh, we're going to read some Mrs. Miracle. I hope we finish the book today. If not, then we'll continue because the plan is I like doing this so much that every Sunday, even after we finish Mrs. Miracle off, we're going to read a book. And it's going to be probably paranormal themed. Let's see who we got in the room. Who's in the chat room? Who's in the house? Hey. <laughs> Hey, Tina, Chris. Anyway, uh, so uh, after we finish this book, we're going to just continue with this Sunday because people seem to like it. So we're going to be it's going to be a paranormal themed book. So uh, once we finish Mrs. Miracle, I'm probably going to go into the uh, Ghost of Flight 401 book and read that for you guys because that's really methodically done. But uh, give everybody a couple more minutes and away we're going to go here. Let me get my tablet set up for Mrs. Miracle and see where we end up tonight. So grab your popcorn, you know, grab grab some hot cocoa, gather around, get, cover yourselves up with towels and uh, or towels or blankets or whatever you use. I use towels. And we're going to read some Mrs. Miracle. Don't you just love the hum of AT&T? I guess when we left off last weekend, uh, his mother-in-law and father-in-law were on the verge of divorce, and they were visiting him. And the, I guess you know they both decided to stay with with him. All right, let me get in here. Okay, it's good to see new faces in our in our room here. So, like I said, I don't know how much farther we have to go with this book. You know, we're into chapter 16, 17 on it, so um, we're just going to keep going until we finish it. Okay, back to right, chapter 20. So we're going to be, we must be close here. So let's get moving here. Harriet Foster decided she didn't see near enough of her niece. Jane did try, but between work and children, the young mother simply didn't have time for extended family. The only way to visit with Jane and her, and her household was to stop off unexpectedly and unannounced. With anyone else, she would have considered such behavior the height of bad manners. But this was family. One had a responsibility to family, however burdensome. Every Saturday afternoon, Harriet parked her car outside Jane's house and made her way up the sidewalk. Harriet had few close friends. She found the women in church to be an unfriendly lot. Her closest friend, quite naturally, had been Abigail, her sister, and Jane's mother. God rest dear, dear Abigail's soul. Harriet viewed it as her God-given duty to take over the role of, as mother to her niece and grandmother to Jane's two children. It was the way Abigail would have wanted it. She pressed the doorbell, and when there wasn't an immediate response, she tried again, and then a third time. Finally, she walked over to the window. Jane's car was in the driveway. She had to be in the house somewhere. Harriet placed her hand against the glass to kill the glare and peer inside. She could see nothing. Just when she was prepared to leave, the front door opened. 
Hello, Aunt Harriet. Jane, my dear, I was about to give up on you. I'm so pleased I didn't. I, I was in the laundry room. You probably didn't hear the doorbell over the dryer, Harriet said, which explained why her niece hadn't answered the door right away. We haven't had much of a chance to talk lately, and I thought I'd stop in for tea. Tea, Jane repeated slowly. Well, actually, the girls haven't been feeling well. A touch of the flu. They're both napping. It's unusual to get them both down at the same time, and I was just hoping that I couldn't that I couldn't have come in more opportune time. She stepped past Jane and moved directly into the house. If she sensed any hesitation in her niece, the condition of the house explained everything. The living room carpet was littered with toys, the Christmas tree leaned to one side, and the decorations looked to be mostly handmade, ones the children had crafted in school, which made the scrawny tree even more unattractive. Her own Christmas tree was a showpiece. The decorations had been carefully collected over the years and were of the finest quality. Harriet's home had never been this untidy. Poor Jane was embarrassed, as well as she should be. There was no excuse for such a mess. A clean home was, um, was aching to godliness. Although she couldn't recall the precise Bible verse, she was sure that was scriptural. I'll make the tea, Harriet announced when Jane, when Jane hesitated. By all that was right, she should have said something to her niece about the condition of her home, but Jane had mentioned the girls weren't feeling well. With a job outside the home, the poor woman should be given a bit of slack. Harriet wasn't often an indulgent, sorry about that, but she was sure God would be equally charitable with her niece. If she weren't already so involved with her many efforts at the church, she would offer to come help Jane with the household chores, but one could take on only so much. I imagine you'll want me over for Christmas dinner again this year, Harriet said, as she filled the teapot with hot water. Actually, Steve's family asked us to dinner. Oh, that left Harriet with several choices. You'd be welcome to join us, Jane offered. Harriet squared her shoulders. Thank you. No, I'd be uncomfortable with a group of strangers on Christmas. I suppose I can change my plan to spend Christmas Eve with you and the children. We can open gifts then. Yes, that's what we'll do. Following the program following the program Christmas Eve, we'll return to the house and the girls can open their gifts. Jane cleared the breakfast dishes from the table. Ah, uh, I'll need to check with Steve, but I think it should be all right. Of course it'll be all right. I'm your aunt. She carried the steeping tea to the table. Jane brought down the two delicate cups and pulled out a chair. Harriet sighed as she settled across from her niece. Frankly, it felt good to sit down. She'd been on her feet most of the day and was scheduled to meet with Reba Maxwell later in the afternoon to practice for the Christmas program. Well, Harriet said with a belabored sigh, I have a number of concerns on my mind that I've made a matter of prayer. You mean about the holidays? Some, Harriet answered, and stirred sugar into her tea. This issue with Ruth Darling and the new man at church was a delicate one, and she decided to test the waters with her, with her niece. You realize I'm playing the piano for the Christmas program. Yes, it's very generous of you. It is, but then I don't see that I had much a choice. Harriet muttered, pinching her lips close, closed. No one else seemed willing to step forward. It was the least I could do. No one seems to appreciate that if it wasn't for me, the program would have been canceled this year. You? Why, yes, Harriet said, holding Jay's gaze. I was the only one of the women in the Martha and Mary circle with a gumption to come up with some, someone who could take over the project. While it's true, I suggested you as the leader, a natural choice, you'd be related to me and all. 
you got your mother's and my blood in your veins. It's only natural for you to step in wherever you're needed. Reba Maxwell took over as the pageant director. Oh, I know that, Harriet snapped. But you were the one who convinced her to do that. But if you're so concerned about the Christmas program, it isn't the pageant that concerns me. It isn't. Harriet looked, took a tentative sip of her tea, eyeing her niece above the rim of the china cup. I have a delicate prayer concern, she said, lowering her voice. This wasn't a conversation she wanted the children to overhear. One that's been burdening my heart for several weeks now. Of course, Aunt Harriet, who is it you'd like me to pray for? It has to do with one of the women at the church. Harriet averted her gaze. You might know her, Ruth Darling. Mrs. Darling? Oh, of course. Jane perked up instantly and sounded positively delighted for the opportunity to pray for the older woman. I know Mrs. Darling. She's such a dear heart. A month or so after I brought Susie home from the hospital, Mrs. Darling spent an entire afternoon watching the baby so I could rest. It meant the world to have those few hours to myself. She's always been so kind and generous. She isn't ill, is she? To hear her niece, the woman was a candidate for sainthood. As far as I can tell, Ruth's in the best of health. Is everything all right with her husband? I think Fred is one of the nicest men I know. This was the avenue that Harriet had been waiting to open. I fear there are problems brewing with Fred and Ruth, she said. It's for the, t it's for the two of them that I'm seeking prayers. Oh dear, what's the problem? I'm afraid it's Ruth, Harriet said, hoping her words would show her niece exactly the kind of woman Ruth was. She squared her shoulders at the pure distastefulness of her disclosure. Ruth has a roving eye. A roving eye, Jane repeated, as if it were a medical condition. What do you mean? Have you met Mr. Fawcett yet? He's a widower who recently moved to Seattle and started attending church. He's been visiting for several months now. Tall, good-looking man. I'm sorry, Aunt Harriet. I can't place him. He sits on the right-hand side of the church, about halfway up, up in the middle of the pew. One would think her niece would notice such a strikingly handsome man. Ruth's eyes have been roving in his direction, if you catch my drift. That was all she would say. Jane would soon see for herself that Harriet had cause to be, to be worried for her friend. Jane frowned. Are you saying that Mrs. Darling is romantically interested in Mr. Fawcett? Harriet stiffened her spine. That's exactly what I'm saying. I'm here to tell you that this woman you regard so highly is flirting with sin. I can see it plain as day. Just watch her, Jane, and you'll know exactly what I mean. I'm sure you're mistaken, Aunt Harriet. It didn't help that her own fl flesh and blood sided with the other woman. I know what I see, and Ruth Darling has her eye on Lyle Fawcett. Trouble's brewing. Mark my words, Jane. Mark my words. Aunt Harriet... The only reason I'm sharing this deep spiritual burden God has placed on my heart, she continued, is so that you'll take it upon yourself to pray for the dear weak woman. You want me to pray about Mrs. Darling's roving eye. Exactly. Have you shared this prayer request with anyone else? Harriet wasn't sure she liked her niece's tone of voice, but she gave her the benefit of the doubt. A few carefully selected friends. Aunt Harriet... You will pray, won't you? Harriet set the teacup in the saucer, glad now that she said her piece. Oh, yes, Jane murmured. And while I'm at it, I'll say a few prayers for you. Chapter 21 
Your Aunt Gertie and Uncle Bill arrived late on 23rd, Joan Maxwell said, stabbing a large pink shrimp atop a seafood Caesar salad. Then they're leaving the morning of the 26th for Hawaii. I can't tell you how excited those two are. To hear your aunt talk, one would think they were newlyweds. Gertie says this is the honeymoon trip World War II cheated them out of. Reba's mother's delight overflowed at the prospect of her aunt and uncle's arrival. It'll be good to see them again, Reba said. Her aunt and uncle were her favorites. They lived in the Midwest and now, because of her uncle's poor eyesight, didn't travel much. It had been three years or longer since Reba had last visited with them. Aunt Gertie is anxious to see you. I'm looking forward to seeing her too. Her aunt had always made her feel special. It was her godmother who stood staunchly by Reba's decision not to marry John, at the same time recognizing her hurt and pain. Her reaction had been a blessed contrast to those of other members of her family. Her parents had offered platitudes that it was all for the best. The best for whom? Reba had wanted to know. For her? It hadn't felt that way, not then. She could remember her aunt saying how very sorry she was, when everyone else seemed to want to celebrate wedding or no wedding. The food had been ordered, they pointed out, the cake baked, the hall rented, so why not get together? It had been her aunt who had wrapped her arms around her and comforted her. Her aunt who had taken her into consideration, had taken into consideration her anguish and humiliation. Aunt Gertie had helped her escape it all by finding her that cabin at the beach. You'll be there for dinner Christmas Eve, won't you? Her mother asked, her gaze sobering as she studied Reba. So this was the reason for the unexpected invitation to dinner out, Reba reflected. It all boiled down to this one question, one more chance to pull the rug out from under her. Reba waited for the words to filter through her mind and emerge as, as a carefully measured response. Her mother already knew the answer. She'd been told perhaps a dozen times that Christmas Eve dinner was impossible. She'd even been given a reason that couldn't be argued with. But apparently she wasn't given up she hadn't given up yet. Reba sighed, watching her mother as she waited for an answer. Mom, I told you and told you I can't be there Christmas Eve. But I thought, I hoped. I'm responsible for the church program, remember? Yes, but I hope that you might see your way clear to join us. It's just after it's just that Aunt Gertie and Uncle Bill. There simply won't be time. There's too much to do. It's going to be hectic pulling everything together. You're sure you can't arrange something? This is your father's oldest brother, and he's getting on in years. Who knows if we'll get an opportunity to spend the holidays with them again. The pleading quality was back in her mother's voice, the soft, almost whiny tone she used whenever Vicky was involved. Reba didn't doubt for a moment that her sister had something to do with this. It was all too convenient this dinner, it's all too convenient this dinner to be contrived. You've known for weeks that I can't make the dinner. Why are you bringing it up now? Joan shredded her shred, jo, nah, sorry, Joan shredded her dinner roll into tiny bits. One would think she was about to feed a flock of pigeons. Mother? It's nothing. I'm sure everything will work out for the best. Don't worry, okay? Reba's agitation rose. For whatever reason, this has to do with Vicky, doesn't it? Her mother couldn't meet her eyes, a sure indication that something was amiss, which almost certainly meant the discussion ultimately involved her older sister. Just tell me. <laughs> Reba wasn't up to playing guessing games. Joan made a weak, frustrated motion with her hands, as if to say this was beyond her control. You said to let Vicky choose which day she'd come, and you take the other. Suddenly, she pushed aside her salad plate as if the, as the side of food disgusted her. Oh dear, this isn't going to work at all. Why isn't it? 
Vicky and Doug can't come for Christmas Eve either. Doug's family is having a large gathering with his with his grandmother. She's almost 80 and in poor health, and Vicky doesn't seem to think she'll last much longer. Oh, great. Just great, Reba mumbled. She bent over backwards to accommodate everyone but herself, and as, and as always happened, everything blew up in her face. Vicky, Doug, and Ellen are planning on spending Christmas Day with us. Reba should have seen it coming. In other words, unless she changed her plans, she wouldn't be able to spend time with her aunt and uncle. As it was, their stay in Seattle would be brief. Reba had assumed Vicky would opt to attend the family dinner her mother had planned, freeing her to be there Christmas Day. I see, she murmured. Vicky doesn't really have a choice. Once again, her mother rushed to take her sister's side. It's Doug's grandmother. Of course she has a choice, the same choice as me. The words echoed with frustration. We could have an early dinner and then all come to the church program, Joan suggested. Reba could see that her mother desperately wanted to correct matters as best she could, but it was impossible. It won't work, Reba insisted. There won't be time. I'll have my hands full seeing to everything. I can't very well take time off to run to your house for dinner and leave my volunteers. The program's at seven. Afterward, then, her mother offered. I won't get out of here any time before 9.30. That's a bit late for dinner. She recalled that her aunt and uncle were early risers and were usually ready for bed by 9 or 10. She couldn't very well drop in and expect a visit then. Oh dear, Joan mumbled. Don't worry about it, Reba said stiffly. I'll call Aunt Gertie and Uncle Bill on Christmas Day. At least she get a chance to talk to her favorite relatives over the phone. But that's ridiculous. They're your godparents. Surely you should put aside the silliness with your sister and... Reba's jaw tightened. Silliness? You call what Vicky did silliness? No, her mother snapped. That's what I call your behavior ever since. How many times does Vicky have to tell you she's sorry? How many times does she have to plead with you to forgive her? Reba deliberately pulled the white linen napkin from her lap and slammed it against the table. Why is it you always take Vicky's side? I'm sick of it. Work it out with her. She's far more reasonable than I am. I'm the silly one, remember? Vicky's always been your little darling, the one who could do no wrong, the perfect daughter. I don't take her side. I've tried to stay out of this from the first, but you make it impossible. Their voices were raised and angry. Reba was the first to notice how much attention they'd attracted. This dinner was supposed to have been fun for both of them, a chance to get away, shop together, and chat. Reba had agreed with a certain amount of reluctance, fearing her mother would use the time as an excuse to wave her relationship with Vic Vicky in her face. Until now, the evening had been enjoyable, but she should have known better than to lower a guard. Tell me, Mother, what did you think when I told you I couldn't make it to Christmas Eve? You never said any such thing. You told me you were taking over the church program. How was I supposed to know that you meant you wouldn't be able to make dinner? It should have been obvious, Reba argued. You might have explained. I think it's time I left, Reba said tightly and reached for her purse. Don't run away, Joan pleaded, her voice much lower. Run away, Reba challenged. What makes you think I'm doing that? You've been doing it for years. Mother, please don't start on me. I can't help it, she cried. You've been running away from your sister for four years. It's past time the two of you sat down and settled this. Why should I talk to a woman with the morals of an alley cat, Reba? There you go, defending her again. She removed a $10 bill from her wallet and set it on the table next to her half-eaten meal. I love you, Mom, but I think it would be better if we didn't have these little get-togethers any longer. We get along better when we don't see much of each other. Having said that, 
She whirled around and quickly wove her way through the dining room and out of the restaurant. By the time she arrived home, Reba was trembling. She sat in her car in the driveway, her hands clenching and unclenching on the steering wheel as she battled to keep her head above the water and the flash flood of emotions that followed. It sounded juvenile to claim her mother loved her sister best, but that was the way Reba felt. All her life she'd been forced to accommodate Vicky, her sister's plans had always taken priority. And now, once more, because of Vicky, she was about to be swindled, this time out of a visit with her favorite aunt and uncle. Perhaps this was, what, this was her mother's less than subtle attempt to trick her into mending fences with her sister. It wouldn't be the first time she tried to manipulate events. After four long years, she still refused to accept that Reba wanted nothing more to do with her sister. She felt lost, alone, friendless. The temptation to talk to Seth was strong, even though she hated, the, she hated to subject him to the emotional baggage she carried around with her. He deserved a woman whose life was not complicated with family problems. Still, before she could change her mind, she backed the car out of her driveway and drove to Seth's house. She told him that he wouldn't be hearing from her that evening. And why? Because she needed to see him. Need, needed the comfort of his reassurances, of his arms. The woman she assumed was his mother-in-law answered the door and smiled a warm greeting. Ah, is Seth available? Reba asked. Sharon ushered her inside. You must be Reba. Feeling self-conscious, Reba nodded. Seth isn't expecting me. Oh, he'll be glad for the break. He's been busy inside his study all evening. I'll get him for you. Hi, Reba. Judd raced to the living room at full speed. Hi, Reba, Jason cried, following on the wave of excitement. Our grandma and grandpa are visiting. I told grandma all about you and how I drew your picture and that you might be our new mom and... Judd! Seth's stern voice cut into his son's enthusiasm. But his gaze softened as it met hers. Hello, Reba. Seth, her eyes pleaded with him for what she wasn't sure. Support, she suspected. Comfort. He walked across the room and took her hands, gripping them firmly with his own. What's happened? The general concern in his voice produced tears. They filled her eyes and threatened to slip down her cheeks. Mom, he said, glancing over his shoulder at Sharon. Would you be kind enough to bring us some coffee in the den? Right away. Come on, kids. You can help me make it. Judd and Jason willingly followed her grandmother. I shouldn't be here, Reba whispered. She was sorry now that she'd come. Sorry to be involving Seth in her problems. She was a big girl, and this wasn't the first time her plans had clashed with those of her sister. Nor was it uncommon for her mother to take her sister's side. He led her into the study and sat her down on a high-back leather chair, sitting on the ottoman. He reached forward and tenderly brushed the short curls away from her temple. His gentle touch sent shivers of awareness shooting down her spine. I thought you were having dinner with your mother. I did, but we got into a terrible argument. She bit down her lower lip to keep from spilling out all the story details. Seth leaned forward and wrapped his arms around her waist, scooting her forward enough to bring her into his arms. What happened? It doesn't matter. You're shaking like a leaf, he countered. She didn't want him to know that part of that was due to the thrill of being in his arms. They'd known each other such a short while, and they hadn't been able to see much of each other. What was his work schedule and hers, visiting relatives, the church Christmas program, and the business of the season? Still, they talked every day, often two or three times. Would you mind kissing me, she asked suddenly. It was a dangerous request with his mother-in-law due to walk in at any moment, but she didn't want to wait. 
In response, he captured her face between his hands and, and smiled softly as his eyes met hers. What do you think? He leaned forward and tenderly placed his mouth over hers. The kiss was long and sweet, involved. One kiss wasn't enough for either of them, and soon the kisses deepened. His touch was like a healing balm, a soothing, a, a soothing, astringent after the pain of her mother's words and actions had inflicted. After the pain, sorry about that. After the pain, her mother's words and actions inflicted. Was Seth she was safe? Was Seth she was cherished? Was Seth she was wanted? He groaned as she opened her mouth to the probing tip of his tongue. By the time Sharon knocked and proceeded into the room, carrying the tray of coffee, Reba was clinging mindlessly to Seth. I'll put this down right here, his mother-in-law announced cheerfully. Is Dad kissing Miss Maxwell again? Reba heard one of the kids ask in a loud whisper. There was not any mistletoe in Dad's study, is there? The other twin demanded. I didn't think he'd do it without the mistletoe, did you? The question was apparently directed at his brother, right on the lips, too. The comment was followed by a sound of disgust. Come on, children. Reba hit her face and Seth's shoulder rather, rather than meet the inquisitive stares of the children. Seth, I'm sorry, she murmured. I'm not. Not in the least. Reba remained embarrassed by how needy she'd been. She hurried to Seth knowing he would lend her the comfort she needed without likely explanations. His hands roved up and down her back, his touch gentle and caring. Gradually, his fingers worked around to her front, capturing her breasts. Her own soft sigh of pleasure mingled with his, and his lips found hers once more for a second, even deeper exchange. Reba's nipples hardened and tingled as she repeatedly skimmed her moist lips across his. This worries me, Seth whispered on the tail end of a husky sigh. What does? Touching you like this. But his hands stayed exactly where they were. Needing her breast through the thin material of her sweater, she hadn't realized how much she wanted him to feel her breast. Oh, Seth, I want it too. That's what I was afraid you'd say. With what seemed to demand a colossal effort, he pulled his hands away from away and braced his forehead against hers, his breathing as deep and shaky as her own. Tell me what happened with your mother. No, she said, and shook her head. I'm better now, thanks to you, much better. It has to do with your sister, doesn't it? Seth, please, I don't want to talk about Vicky. She kissed him, using her tongue to outline the shape of his mouth, teasing him with short, nibbling kisses, darting her tongue in and out of his mouth. If you're trying to distract me, it's working. Good, she smiled softly to herself. Now pour me some coffee and tell me what's going on between, you, between your in-laws. Her words appeared to sober him. He took a moment to straighten, then did as she requested. After he brought her a cup of coffee, he sat on the leather chair next to hers. Something's happened between those two. Good or bad? He frowned. I don't know, but I suspect it's bad. Jerry arrived and the two talked privately for a while. I assume they cleared up whatever was wrong between them, but my feeling is that it hasn't gone away. Are they fighting? No, he said, holding the coffee mug with both hands. He leaned forward and braced his elbows against his knees. Not in the least. It's like they're polite strangers. It's please and thank you at every turn. Jerry brings her coffee in the morning as she makes sure the newspaper is just so for him. That sounds like a routine for a long-married couple. I suppose, he said, but it didn't look as though they were reassured. It didn't look as though he, re he were reassured. If anything, he seemed convinced of the opposite. You think it's for show, don't you? His grin was slightly off-center. Yes, that's exactly what I think. It's like they're playing this game, making it seem that there couldn't possibly be anything wrong with their relationship. But you think there is. I know there is. 
She didn't ask how he knew. Then why would they go through this pretense? I don't know. Possibly because it's close to Christmas, and they don't want to upset the twins. Or because of me. He rubbed a hand down the side of his face and glanced guiltily at her. Then again, I've been distracted by a certain travel agent of late and wouldn't know my head from a wouldn't know my head from a hole in the ground. Happiness filled her heart. It's an honor to be considered a distraction. He chuckled. If only you knew. Tell me, her ego could do with a few strokes. You tell me what sent you running to me like an injured rabbit after having dinner with your mother. Reba glared at him, then smiled. You don't play fair. He didn't respond, merely seemed content to wait until she, she satisfied his curiosity. Vicky will be with my family Christmas Day. From the emotionless look in his eyes, she could tell he didn't understand. There appears to have been a breakdown in communication between my mother and me. Since I'm the chair for the Christmas program, I can't attend dinner Christmas Eve, and apparently my sister is obligated to attend some shindig with her husband's family. You don't want to be with your parents at the same time as your sister. I won't have anything to do with her. I already explained that, remember? She knew she sounded defensive, but she couldn't help herself. Spend the day with me and the kids, Seth invited her. She hadn't come seeking an inv invitation. She shook her head. No, but thank you. Why not? It's a pity invitation. Seth chuckled. Hardly. I like it more than you know. Come, please. Pride should have been enough to keep her from accepting, but pride was cold comfort. For the first time since the disastrous day of her near wedding, she had someone in her life. Reba, Seth Coast. I'll come. Such a little thing. She had no right to be this happy. Chapter 22 Surely goodness and mercy personal friends of Mrs. Miracle... Ah, here we go. Sorry. <laughs> the irony of it. Okay, blah, blah, blah. The irony of it was that Sharon had gotten along with Jerry better in the last several days since they'd agreed to a divorce than in the previous 12 months. She sat next to him in the movie theater and forced her attention back to the screen. Agent 007 was back in action. James Bond had returned to save the world from the latest fiend. She reached for a handful of popcorn and Jerry angled the bucket toward her granting her easy access to the buttery top kernels. A time not so long ago, and they wouldn't have been able to agree on which movie, which theater, what night, or anything else. She wasn't entirely sure how they managed it this time. It was as though the decision to separate had freed them, and that they could once more return to the congenial couple they'd once been. The temptation was to forget the troubles of the past and enjoy this newfound accord, but Sharon knew this honeymoon wouldn't last. They'd agreed to make the best of it until after Christmas. It made sense not to ruin the children's holidays with the distressing news of their failed marriage. The action-packed movie involved almost everyone else in the theater, but Sharon had a difficult time keeping her thoughts on the characters on the screen. It wasn't supposed to happen like this, with the two of them sitting in a movie theater as if nothing were amiss, as if they were so deeply in love as the day they married, or more so. The heavy weight of her failure pressed down on her until she felt as if she were slowly being lowered into a pit of despair. So many questions remained unanswered. Sharon wasn't sure what she'd do with herself, or where she'd live, or even what she'd tell her friends. In retrospect, she she wished she'd paid more attention to what other women said. Known, I'm sorry, to what, what other women she'd known had done following their divorces. As far as she could remember... Few, if any, had turned out to be friendly divorces. They'd all started out that way, but somewhere along the line, animosity had taken control. 
It was also terribly depressing to see what could happen between two people who'd once professed to love each other. Soon it would be happening to her and Jerry. The movie credits started to roll across the large white screen, and Sharon realized to some surprise that the film was over. She hadn't realized how close the plot was to the end, which was a bit like her marriage, she mused. The credits were about to scroll down the once white screen of her life with Jerry. Whatever happened to Anita Perkins, Sharon asked her husband. Jerry wore a puzzled look as he stood and led the way out of the theater. Anita and her husband had been Elk members, and Earl had routinely played golf with Jerry. A couple of years back, they divorced, and now Sharon couldn't recall what had become of her friend. I don't know, Jerry admitted. Don't you see Earl anymore? No, her husband frowned and shook his head. I can't say that I do. It must be six months or longer. Since he was out at the golf course, he just drifted away. He paused and then asked, what about Anita? Sharon struggled. The last I heard, she'd moved to Oregon to be closer to her daughter. They remained, they remained unnaturally quiet as they made their way toward the parking lot. Seth had loaded, Jerry the, had loaded Jerry the family car. They were both sitting inside, the engine running and the defroster blasting hot air against the windshield before Jerry spoke again. It won't be that way with us. Sharon Prady was right, but life held few guarantees. What went wrong with Anita and Earl? She asked, thinking Jerry might have some insight to share, something that would help see them through this diff difficult time. Jerry shrugged. Earl never said. What about Anita? Not much, just that they'd grown apart the last few years. The same as us, then. For the first time since she mentioned divorce, a note of sadness entered Jerry's voice. Like I said earlier, it'll be different with us. We'll make it different. Sherry knew he believed that now, but once the attorneys started casting accusations of blame like poison darts, they'd react the same way their friends had, and all their good intentions would get tossed out the proverbial window. Despite their talk about making this as friendly as friendly as possible divorce, it would be eventually turned into something ugly, the same as it had with other couples they'd known. By nature, the dissolution of marriage was ugly and painful. Jerry pulled out of the parking lot in the street. Do you want to stop and have dinner? No, thanks. The popcorn filled me up. A small white lie. Me too, Jerry muttered. But it wasn't the popcorn, and they both knew it. Their appetite had been ruined by the remainder that soon by the reminder that soon they would be like their friends. A year from now, one of Jerry's golfing buddies was going to ask what had ever happened to Sharon and Jerry and say how sad it was that they hadn't been able to work matters out. The house was dark and quiet, except for a thin slice of light coming from beneath the study door. Sharon heard softly mumbling voices and suspected her son-in-law wouldn't appreciate intrusion. Reba had apparently come to help him watch the kids. Jerry raised his eyebrows when he heard a soft giggle. He didn't say anything until the bedroom door was closed. What's going on with Seth? The house was dark and quiet except for a thin slice of light coming. I'm sorry. Ha <laughs> ha, it skipped over. He's got, a, he's got a woman friend. Sharon wasn't entirely sure how much she should say. The same one who stopped by last night, Jerry asked of meaning. It sounds like they might be getting serious. It's been four years. Still, her husband frowned. He's not going to marry her, is he? How would I know? Sharon removed her sweater and hung it up in the closet. She ran her hand along the soft texture of the knit fabric, a gift from Jerry, one he purchased a couple of years earlier for her birthday. Do you like her? Sharon sighed. I only met her once, briefly. She's a nice girl. What can I say? The twins seemed to like her. Jerry sat on the edge of the mattress, his shoulders sagging. 
It shouldn't come as a shock. Seth's young and healthy. I didn't know he was dating. He hasn't before now, has he? I wouldn't know. Jerry looked away as if the subject were an uncomfortable one. It's not that I object, mind you. It's just that I've always thought of Seth as Pammy's husband. I did too, but it's time, past time. Like you said, Seth's young and healthy. From what he's told me about Reba, meeting her was like a gift from God. It's the same for her, apparently, although he didn't mention why. You say the twins like her? Very much. It was one thing to accept this other woman as part of Seth's life, and quite another to view her as a possible stepmother to Judd and Jason. Since she'd taken over Pamela's role until the last four months, Sharon had suffered more than one qualm. The fact that the children were eager for their father to remarry was confirmation that she'd done her job well. If the kids like her, then that's good enough for me. Jerry tended to see things in black and white. As far as, she, as, far as he was concerned, the matter was settled in his mind. It is for me too, she added, only with only the slightest hesitation. Jerry removed his clothes and climbed into bed and sat up with his hands braced behind his back, his elbows jutting out on his sides. She'd been, dressing like an un she'd been dressing and undressing in front of her husband for nearly 40 years. It was ridiculous to be shy about doing so now. Jerry studied her as she self-consciously removed her clothes. You're a fine figure of a woman, Sharon. Even more ridiculous was the wave of color that flooded her cheeks. Thank you, she mumbled, embarrassed and eager to turn off the light. Will you remarry? The question came out of the blue and caught her by surprise. Remarry? Me? She snapped. Of course not. Why would I do anything so foolish? She didn't mean to sound waspish, but she was genuinely taken aback by the absurdity of the question. You're the one who asked for the divorce, he reminded her, his jaw tightening. For all I know, there might be someone else in your life right now. For a moment, Sharon was too stunned to respond. Do you mean to say that you've been living with me all these years and you still don't know me, Jerry Palmer? Jerry pinched his lips tightly closed. Sharon tossed back the covers and climbed between the sheets. Only this night, she was the one who rolled onto her side and presented her back to her husband. She tucked the sheet more securely about her shoulder and held it tightly in place at her neck. I, I didn't mean that to sound the way it did, Jerry admitted, gruffly a couple of moments later. She heard his regret and sighed brokenly. I know. I was curious is all, but you're right. It was an insulting question. He turned off the light and hunkered down into the covers. Sharon heard even the flow of his breathing. Who knows what the future holds for any of us, he whispered. What about you? She, re she repositioned herself. They lay side by side, each staring up at the ceiling, being careful not to touch one another. Will you remarry? I doubt it, he answered. After a thoughtful pause, I've loved you all these years. I can't imagine loving someone else. But then, like I said earlier, who knows what the future holds? Not me. Definitely not me. Chapter 23 Emily Merkel poured herself a cup of freshly brewed tea and made herself comfortable on the kitchen table. A slow, easy smile spread across her face as she gave herself a mental pat on the back. Everything was falling neatly into place. Seth and Reba were thick as thieves. She glanced heavenward and asked, and asked pardon for the analogy. Certainly, they had enormous problems to work out, given Reba's troubles with her sister and Seth's obsession with the past. But her prayer was that love would see them through all that. She wasn't nearly as comfortable with what was happening between Sharon and Jerry. Those two were stubborn, equally at fault, each willing to blame the other. But when Jerry showed up in search of his wife, Emily had hope. 
Sharon was mature enough to recognize that there was nothing going on between her husband and best friend. The love between those two wasn't as dead as they wanted to believe. Harriet Foster, well, Harriet still needed a bit of work. Nothing major, just a little heavenly elimination. It might make a, it might take a direct message from the Almighty to reach like to, to reach the window. The poor dear, she hadn't a clue of how she muddied the good name of God with the righteousness. Do you always wait to do your Christmas shopping until last minute? Reba asked Seth, who was pushing the cart through the impossibly crowded toy store. Music blared in the background, loudly enough to drown out her thoughts, or, more appropriately, the cries of the children. High on sugar and excitement, kids ran helter-skelter down the aisles. With Christmas in the middle of the week, this was the last weekend left to shop, and everyone in the Seattle metropolitan area, it seemed, had descended upon the toy store. There appeared to be a run on Barbie's playhouses. Reba saw several desperate parents waving fistfuls of money over their heads, hoping to persuade the clerk to be merciful towards them. I tell myself every year that I'm not going to do this, Seth said, maneuvering the cart down the bicycle aisle. He wove it around a little boy who sat in a wagon in the middle of the lane, waiting contentedly for some generous soul to hitch him up to the back of a bike and tow him around the store. Seth looped his arm around her shoulder, his eyes held hers, and everything else seemed to fade away. The noise, the children, the sense of panic and rush. The excitement remained, only now it seemed centered between the two of them. Reba was profoundly aware of Seth, profoundly aware of the strength of their attraction. In her pain and disappointment, she'd come to him. He comforted her with his words and his gentleness and his kisses. If they hadn't been in his home with family close at hand, Reba wondered where those kisses might have led them. She was glad she hadn't needed to make that decision. Seth was dangerous. He reminded her she was a woman. Any part of her that was sexual had been buried. He made her feel again, made her yearn for all that she'd been missing. The fear remained, but with, hang on a second, here we go, nowhere near the intensity of previous relationships. I appreciate your coming with me, Seth told her, breaking the spell that, it, that, 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 that enveloped them. What, and miss all this? She teased. Seth's in-laws had the children for the afternoon. Mrs. Merkel had sent them out with her blessing and the promise of a hot meal upon their return. Although Reba had teased him, she was enjoying herself. This was almost as good as being a mother herself. She loved Jed and Jason and the other children she'd come to know through the Christmas program. She paused as they turned down another aisle. She stood in front of the doll section. Ellen, Mickey's little girl, would be at the age where she'd love a baby doll. The urge to buy one was strong, but her mother was sure to take it as a sign that Reba wanted to mend the relationship, and nothing could be further from the tooth. Seth steered her farther down the aisle. Say, did you hear they have, they have a divorce, Barbie? No, Reba couldn't believe it. Yep, he said, with a twi twinkle in his eye. She's got all the Ken's things. Reba laughed and elbowed him in the ribs, and Seth chuckled too. All in all, she felt good. Generally, the holidays were an unhappy reminder of the problem between her and her sister, and this year was no exception. Although she'd agreed to spend Christmas Day with Seth and his family, a part of her resented that it was Vicky's, Vicky who would be with her Aunt Gertie and Uncle Bill. Reba would have liked to introduce Seth to her parents and her aunt and her uncle, but that was out of the question now. Jed said something about wanting Power Ranger walkie-talkies, Seth said, breaking into her thoughts. Do you have any idea where those might be? 
Reba knew next to nothing about the setup in toy stores. Your guess is as good as mine. This is all new to me. New. You act like a pro with all those kids at church. One would think you'd be doing this for quite some time. You've been doing this for quite some time. You make it look easy. You know what's going to happen, don't you? You've talked yourself into a job for the next 10 years. Frankly, she wouldn't mind. The benefits from volunteering to direct the Christmas program have been an unexpected blessing. While her motives hadn't been pure, she'd reaped untold rewards. Sure, there was the hassle factor, but again, the sense of accomplishment outweighed any problems. The Christmas Eve program would be a wonderful success, and she'd, and she'd like to think of it was due to her efforts. Naturally, Seth and his in-laws would be there for would be there for the performance. Reba would have liked to have her family there as well, and the knowledge that they would not be coming brought a twinge of disappointment. Her spirits lifted again when she reflected on yet another unexpected benefit of volunteering her time. She'd made friends with several of the other women, and she even picked up a number of new clients. It felt good to be an active member of the church family, contributing more than just her presence in a pew on Sunday morning. For the first time in four years, she was reaching out, charting new ground, planting seeds. She cast a glance at Seth, who wore a, per who wore, sorry, who wore a perpetual frown as he wandered aimlessly down one aisle after the next. Poor fellow, he needed her. Next year, she Reba stopped herself, amazed at how she'd imagined them together 12 months in the future. She stood proudly at his side, happier than she can remember being in a very long while. Reba, the soft voice cut into her thoughts like the sharpest of sabers. Even after all this time, she recognized the speaker. Vicky. Reba tensed and slowly, slowly, deliberately turned around. Seth must have sensed the way her muscles tightened because he turned with her. Reba said nothing. She couldn't. It felt as if her tongue had frozen to the roof of her mouth. The old, familiar resentment rose like bile in the back of her throat. Her gaze slid from her sister to the tall, good-looking man at her side and the little girl in his arms. So this was Ellen, the much-loved grandchild. Vicky and Doug's daughter. She was beautiful, sleeping contently on her father's shoulder, her blonde hair spilling down his back. Reba's heart softened with an instant flow of love for this child she'd never seen. I talked to Mom this morning, Vicky said, her delicate voice shaking slightly. She explained that there's been a misunderstanding about Christmas Eve. There was no misunderstanding. Her mother had sided with her sister the way she had from the beginning. Seth must have realized that Vicky was who Vicky was before he moved closely protecting I'm sorry. Seth realized <laughs> Seth must have realized who Vicky was because he moved closer, protective protectively to her. She was grateful for both the physical and the emotional support. I want you to know that I feel bad about that. Yeah, I bet, Rima muttered. I talked it over with Doug, Vicky continued, and glanced up at her husband, and we decided it wouldn't be that much of a problem to change our plans. Don't worry about it. Reva made her voice as cold and as unfeeling as she could. She was horrified to feel a lump form in her throat. I've already made ultimate plans for Christmas. You go on ahead and visit with Aunt Gertie and Uncle Bill. But they're your godparents. It was on... And it was on the tip of her tongue to remind Vicky that John had been her fiancé and it hadn't stopped her from sleeping with him. Hadn't stopped Vicky from ruining her life. We've already phoned Doug's grandmother and explained, Vicky said. Please, Reba, it's a small thing. I want you to be home for Christmas. I appreciate the effort, but as I said, I've already made other plans. 
Her sister must have noticed the way Reba's gaze fell on the sleeping child. The photographs that filled her parents' house didn't do this little girl justice. Reba's heart felt tight, as though a, a vice were constricting her chest. She didn't want to feel anything for Vicky's daughter, but she couldn't help herself. The desire to hold little Ellen herself was overwhelming. Forcefully, she moved her gaze elsewhere. Ellen's a lot like you, Vicky said. I don't know if Mom told you. Reba shook her head, not able to bear hearing it. She was about to turn away when Vicky's husband stopped her. Reba, Doug said sharp, sharply, her sister's husband looked at Seth and appeared to be asking for a few minutes, moments indulgence. I know what happened with Vicky and John. It's in the past. Everyone makes mistakes. I have. You have. Wouldn't it make life less complicated if you could forgive your sister and get on with your life? Reba laughed. The scratchy sound as if full of sarcasm she can make a scratchy sound as if full of sarcasm she can make it. No way. If she's miserable with the way matters are between us, all the better. It's what she deserves. Doug, I told you it wouldn't do any good. Vicky reached out and touched her husband's arm. A look of hopelessness came over her face, and she was about to turn away when she stopped and raised her goal her gaze to meet Seth. Reba bristled. Her sister had already stolen one man from her. She'd be damned if she'd let her take another. She was about to say something ugly when Vicky spoke, only this time her comment was directed to Seth. Make her happy, she whispered. Make her forget. With tears glistening in her eyes, she walked away. Doug remained a moment longer. You're a fool, he said. Again, Reba was forced to restrain herself from reminding her brother-in-law that he'd married a woman who was likely to betray him if she had her own flesh and blood. If he wanted to talk about what, about fools, perhaps he should take a close look at his own life. Not until her sister and family were out of sight did Reba lower her guard. The starch went out of her, went out of her then, and all at once her knees felt like mush. She exhaled slowly and lowered her head, struggling to regain her composure. "Are you all right?" Seth asked. She lied and nodded. Her fingers tightened about his arms, cutting into his flesh. "Thank you," she whispered. For what? For not saying anything, for standing at my side. If she'd had the strength and the wherewithal, she would have turned and walked away the instant Vicky had spoken to her. Even now, she couldn't explain why she hadn't. She'd stood and talked to her sister the way some people linger, fascinated with the morbid. Seth's arm tightened about her as if he instinctively recognized her need. He kissed the top of her head and whispered something she couldn't hear. Something about sincerity. That was when the trembling started so badly that she wasn't that she was sure others could hear her knees knocking maybe we should find some place to sit down he said she nodded barely conscious of what she'd agreed to that might be a good idea by luck the toy store had a small snack bar and a few tables seth found her a seat left her momentarily and returned with a cup of hot steaming coffee can i get you anything else i'm fine she refused to allow her sister to ruin the special time Christmas shopping with Seth. Every minute they could squeeze out of their already tight schedules to be together was precious. Seth stood behind her and rubbed her tired, tense shoulder muscles. Are you going to, over to your parents on Christmas, he asked. No, she stated emphatically, stunned that he would ask. Despite Vicky's assurances, she didn't trust her sister. Couldn't. Vicky had proven exactly how untrustworthy she could be. I'm spending the day with you, remember? She added, turning to smile up at him. I'd enjoy meeting your family. The suggestion was made the suggestion was made in gentle tones, as though he'd feared upsetting her. He wasn't making this easy. 
Another time. Okay, he agreed softly. She shot she thought he'd understood. Thought he'd appreciated her reasons for having nothing to do with her older sibling. Reba had carried the shame of her sister's betrayal while her family had gathered around Vicky as if she were the injured one. The old hurts, the old pain, returned. Seth reached for a chair, positioned it in front of her, and straddled it. Reba, don't you see? You're the one who's suffering. You're denying yourself the pleasure of visiting your uncle and aunt. I'll see them another time, she returned tightly. That wasn't what you told me after dinner with your mother. As I recall, you were upset because this may well be the last time you have a chance to visit them. They're getting on in years, remember? Reba longed to place her hands over her ears and block out his words. It wasn't what he said. She had no defense because common sense told her he was right. She had no argument. She stood on sinking ground and knew it. This grudge she carried against her sister had hurt her and would continue to do so. Her sister, the wife, and mother. Her sister, the wonderful, generous daughter, the mother of her parents' only grandchild, always so perfect, always so good, the traitor. Perhaps you should head toward the checkout stand, Reba suggested, looking blindly into the distance. Seth hesitated. I'm not siding with your sister against you, he said after a moment. You're the one I care about. You're the one I don't want to see hurt. Again, she added, hurt again. He hadn't a clue. If he had, he wouldn't have asked her to work matters through with Vicky. All her hopes for the future, all her dreams came crashing to her feet and shattered like crystal. Unlike any man she'd met since the broken engagement, Seth had led her to believe he understood. He didn't. He couldn't possibly comprehend what he was asking of her. Reba joined him just as he was finishing up at the check stand and helped him carry out the bulky purchases back to the car. She smiled, hoping that they could put the matter behind them. Soon they were on the road again, heading back to Seth's house. The silence that stretched between them was like a rubber strand of a slingshot. The pressure so strong, it all but vibrated. Reba, I know it's none of my affair, but you've got to let go of this bitterness or you're going to prickle or you're going to pickle in it. If he meant to be amusing, he failed miserably. I don't want to talk about it. You can't live in the past. Furious that he, of all people, would say that to her, she refused to respond. He was... He was the man hung up on a dead wife, the man who'd buried himself in his grief. Vicky was about to do it to her again. She was going to lose Seth, and all because of her sister. You've let what Vicky did change your entire outlook on life. Don't you think this whole thing has hurt Vicky too? It probably has, and in ways you never imagined. Have you ever really talked it over with her? As I said before, I don't have anything to say to my sister, and furthermore, I'm not willing to listen to anything she has to tell me. If he thought he was helping, he was wrong. Every time he opened his mouth, he made matters worse, much worse. All he did was repeat what other well-meaning friends and family had said to her. His attitude was one of the sorriest disappointments of her life. She'd expected much more of him. But, Seth, don't, she pleaded, and closed her eyes. Please don't say another word. The rest of the drive was completed in dark silence. He parked his car in the driveway. Despite her unhappiness, she had to smile when two small faces appeared in the window. Judd and Jason battled for the best vantage point to check out the Christmas goodies, hoping for the opportunity to catch a glimpse of what presents they'd find under the tree on Christmas morning. It looks like we have a welcoming committee, Seth said. So I see. If I know Mrs. Merkel, she's cooked up a feast to a 
to attempt, to tempt the saints. I don't know about you, but I'm starved. I can't stay, she said, eager to get away. She opened the car door, anxious to make her escape, anxious to sort through what had happened. Chapter 24 Harriet Foster decided she couldn't delay her talk with Pastor Loveless any longer. The matter with Ruth Darling wasn't the only problem, either. God had graced her with a knack for details, and she'd noticed a number of other good Christians flirting with sin. Since she hadn't been able to accidentally, on purpose, bump into the minister, she scheduled an appointment through the church secretary. It's vitally important I speak with Pastor Loveless at his earliest convenience, she told Joanne Lawton. When the church secretary had quizzed her about the purpose of the meeting, Harriet had been vague. She said something along the lines of, of, of the matter being a delicate one that, in her humble opinion, required the attention of the church's spiritual leader. She must have been convincing because, jo because Joanne had scheduled her for an appointment first thing Monday morning, three days before Christmas. Harriet dressed carefully, choosing her best outfit, the one she generally reserved for formal occasions, playing the pipe organ at baptisms and weddings, that sort of thing. Her new black pumps were a tad snug and uncomfortable, but would loosen with a bit of wear, she decided. Gen generally, she avoided studying her reflection in the mirror. She allowed only one small hand mirror in her home. Anything larger would be flirting with vanity. And, while other Christian women were spiritually comfortable wearing cosmetics, Harriet could never use anything but a light shade of lipstick. Jewelry was another matter. Her only adornment was a plain gold wedding band and a locket that had once belonged to her grandmother. One day she would pass it along to her niece. To her way of thinking, a woman, in the service of God, would choose to don only what would enhance a meek and humble spirit. Harriet cringed whenever she saw a woman wearing large, looped earrings. And she nearly fainted the first time she'd seen an earring on a teenage boy. In his nose. The mere thought was enough to cause her to grimace, even now, months later. She arrived promptly, as always for her appointment. Cleanliness wasn't the only personality trait that was next to godliness. Pastor Loveless would see you now, Joanne said when Harriet entered the office. The other woman led the way into Pastor Loveless's private study. The minister was a good man who preached straight out of the King James Version of the Bible. Harriet approved of his choice and had let it be known early on. Although young, he possessed a healthy appreciation for the traditional view of such important matters. He stood as she entered the room and motioned to the chair on the other side of his desk. Good morning, Mrs. Foster. I understand you wanted to see me. Harriet sat and folded her hands primarily in her lap. It's a matter of some importance. That's what I understand. He sat down and waited for her to continue. Harriet had hoped to exchange a small talk to exchange small talk and ease her way in, into this burden on her heart. She inhaled slowly, thinking direct the yeah, direct approach was probably the best. A soul couldn't ease into a discussion about sin. Pastor Loveless waited silently, and Harriet plunged right in. As you're probably aware, I've been a member of this congregation for well over 20 years. It seems longer. <laughs> My husband's family was one of the founding members of this congregation. She bowed her head out of reverence for the dead. May God rest his soul. You've served our church community with great vigor, Pastor Loveless admitted graciously. Harriet had always been fond of the man. He showed, he showed a keen insight into the many personal sacrifices others had made on behalf of the church. Tell me, 
How is the pageant coming along? Have you enjoyed working with Reba Maxwell? Well, Harriet said with a heavy sigh, and scooted close to the edge of the cushion. I understand that when Millie's husband was transferred, the church, the church was in some sort of a bind. But personally, from all indications, Pastor Loveless interrupted, Miss Waxwell, Miss Maxwell, is doing an excellent job, working long hours and putting a great deal of time and energy into the project. Yes, Harriet admitted reluctantly. The Maxwell woman had done everything he said, but the church had taken a risk by allowing a woman with one spotty attendance record at Pest to step in at the last minute. Luckily, there hadn't been too many problems. I apologize, Mrs. Foster. I've sidetracked you. Harriet cleared her throat. As I was saying earlier, I've attended this church for several years now, and I'm familiar with many of the families. Pastor Loveless relaxed in his chair. It's because I know the parishioners as well as I do that I feel I can speak freely about their about their concerns. As you see them. As you see them? Yes. There were things she could tell him that would turn his hair prematurely gray. If he showed any indication of wanting to know the levels of, of depravity some of the up, upstanding members of this very church had shown, she'd be happy to tell him. Only as a matter of prayer, of course. There appear to be a number of areas of deep concern, she said meeting and holding his gaze. He arched his eyebrows. I'm afraid I'm not following you. First off, let's discuss Emily Merkel. She she could tell by the blank look that he hadn't placed the name. Seth Webster's new housekeeper. Ah, yes, a smile quivered on the edges of his mouth. Harry had wondered what he found so amusing. The woman's a busybody. And any old biddy besides... Okay, and an old biddy besides, but she feared Pastor Loveless would find her words unkind. She didn't want to alienate him before she zeroed in on the real reason for her visit. I find Mrs. Miracle, <clears throat> I mean Merkle, to be a woman of unique faith. Perhaps Harriet was willing to grant the woman that much. She certainly has found a way to ingratiate herself with the women of this church in short order. Harriet, however, wasn't easily taken in by a smooth tongue and slick, by a, by a smooth tongue and slick manners. The woman was troubled with a capital T, baking cookies for the women's bazaar and contributing the recipe for winter's fruit dip. Why? It was just pure indulgence. That's what it was, pure indulgence. Don't you agree? Pastor's eyes narrowed as he looked at her. Mrs. Merkel is a woman of unique faith. Faith, perhaps, but I see very little religion in her. How do you mean, the young minister pressed? Something in his attitude changed. She noticed it in his eyes and believed he was keen to hear a response. Well, it's difficult to explain with words. It's as if the woman is quite like the rest, isn't quite like the rest of us, if you catch my drift. You mean she isn't of this world? Something like that. When she looks at me, I'm left with the feeling that she didn't dare voice the truth, not with the opposite sex. The fact was she'd been left feeling exposed as if Emily Merkel had the power to know things she had no business knowing. Once several years ago, shortly after her husband had passed on, Harriet had purchased a pair of silk underpants. She attributed the minor decline in common sense to her overwhelming loss and grief. She wore them only once and had hidden them in the back of her drawer ever since. For reasons she couldn't explain, Harriet felt Emily Merkel knew about those black silk panties. The feeling that, he prompted. Frankly, Pastor, I'm not here to talk about the Webster's housekeeper. It's Ruth Darling who concerns me. 
Ruth, darling, he sounded surprised. Ruth, the delicate matter you wish to discuss? Harriet sat up on the chair, stiffening her spine. She was so close to the edge of the cushion that she was in danger of falling butt first onto the floor. She didn't expect this to be a comfortable conversation, but she considered it her Christian duty. If she could save one last lamb from stumbling into the den of wolves and being trapped in, 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 in iniquity, then she completed her task. What I say must stay in this office, she warned, glancing over her shoulder to be certain. The door was completely closed. She didn't know Joanne Lawton well, but she wouldn't put it past the church secretary to listen in on conversations that were meant to be private. But of course. Once she'd been granted the assurance she needed, Harriet felt free to continue. I fear for the spiritual well-being of my dear, dear friend. Unable to meet his gaze, she stared at her, she stared at her clenched hands. I've discovered that, she closed her eyes, hardly able to voice it, that my friend has, she paused for effect, lusted after another man. Ruth Darling? Pastor Loveless leaped to his feet and quickly sat back down. I'm sure you're mistaken, he continued in a less boisterous manner. Harriet had feared it would come to something like this. She reached for her purse and withdrew an envelope. I've kept a list of my observations, she said, wanting it to sound as if the task had been re repugnant to her. With a show of reluctance, she handed him the envelope. You'll discover that the first occurrence happened several months ago, in September, September 7th, to be exact, and right here in this very church. Pastor Loveless lowered the envelope to his desk without opening it. Harriet had hoped he'd read the mounting data for herself and save her the necess necessity of having to spell out what could only be the truth. The evidence was overwhelming. The conclusion is simple. I'm afraid it's Lyle Fawcett, she said. He's the man who tempted her to fall from grace. This has to do with Ruth Darling and Lyle Fawcett? The pastor sounded incredulous. Why, yes. His shock was what she'd expected. Apparently, she was the only one diligent enough to recognize what was happening. To his credit, Lyle had been an innocent bystander, unaware of the course to send his presence had wrought. It pains me to inform you that Ruth has eyed Lyle like a bird of prey every Sunday for weeks. It's most disconcerting to find the woman married to a man as good and kind as Fred Darling oogling another man. And you've discussed your concerns with Ruth yourself? Harriet's back went round Ron straight. Discussed the situation with Ruth herself? She'd never heard anything so ridiculous in her life. One didn't go about confronting people about sin. That was a minister's job. While it was true that some less than charitable Christians might find it their duty, Harriet most certainly did not. Surely you're not suggesting that I speak to Ruth about this. Why, I couldn't if, even if I wanted to. It wouldn't be right. That's exactly what I'm saying. It might surprise you to learn that matters are not always what they seem. Although Pastor Loveless's eyes were kind, his words carried a sharp edge. You might learn something. There's a link between the two, isn't there? Harriet had suspected as much from the first. I believe you're right about that. Aha! She raised her index finger towards the ceiling. Pastor Loveless laughed outright and then had the good grace to look repentant. I want you to promise me that you'll discuss your concerns with Ruth Darling yourself. It was unthinkable. I, I don't know that I can. It's my feeling that if any of us have a question about one of our brethren, instead of asking others, we go directly to that person. Harriet didn't like what she was hearing. It was the last thing she expected from the pastor. Surely you don't condone Ruth's behavior. 
It isn't for me to condone or condemn. Harriet couldn't believe her ears. The woman was flirting with the worst form of sin. Surely Pastor Loveless recognizes much. The pastor stood, indicating their time together was at an end. You'll do as I ask? Harriet's mouth opened and closed a number of times. If you're sure, if you think I should, I do. He seemed to be waiting for her to leave. Harriet fumbled in her purse for another slip of paper. There are two others whom I'd like to report. Flustered now, she unfolded the sheet. Barbara Newton and Olivia Sanchez and... Have you spoken directly to them, he interrupted. Ah, uh, no, but I assume... I thought you'd want to do that yourself. That he suggested she, she would was nothing short of shocking. As I said, it's been my experience that whenever one hears something unkind or negative about another person, the best course is to ask that person. He paused and seemed to wait for Harriet to respond. But I know that you have a kind and generous heart for the people of this church, Harriet relaxed. Indeed I do. I care deeply about the spiritual welfare of every soul who walks through these doors. I felt you must. I know that you'd be the last person to want to create gossip. She planted her hand over her heart. Never. That's why I came directly to you with these matters. All I'm saying is that perhaps it would be it would be best to talk to these individuals yourself in a spirit of love. Naturally. Naturally. Ask if there's any way you could be of help. Offer them your friendship. She had so few real friends and she wasn't entirely sure why. Her shyness was a problem, and she'd had Abigail, but now that both her sister and her husband were gone, it felt as if the entire world had shriveled up and died. For the first time in her life, she was truly lonely. No one wanted to be friends with her. No one invited her to their homes. She was, she was good enough to play the organ for all their special functions, but not good enough to be a friend. Never that. Thank you for seeing me, Harriet mumbled on her way, her way out the door. She had achieved nothing. Her visit to Pastor Loveless had failed. Ruth Darling would continue her flirtation with Lyle Fawcett, and all the church would look on with horror as another family was destroyed. Trapped in her musings, Harriet walked outside the church without watching her step. When she stepped on a thin patch of ice in the church parking lot, her feet went out from under her. Arms flailing, she let out a blood-curdling scream that was loud enough to hail the second coming. From her, from her peripheral vision, she saw Joanne Lawton's face wide with shock and horror from the office window, looking to the parking lot. The next thing she knew, the pavement was rushing up to greet her. She closed her eyes and prayed for mercy. She must have blacked out because when she opened her eyes, she saw two men leaning over her, both wore the familiar uniform of paramedics. Carefully, they placed her on the mat and wheeled her toward the egg car. It was difficult to focus on which part of her body hurt the worst. Her head felt as though someone had taken a sledgehammer to it. Her arm had to be broken, for the pain there was dreadful. In her agony, she groaned. Try not to speak, one of the men said to her. It looks to me like your jaw's broken. All right, that's chapter 25 coming up. And it looks like we have an hour and 13 minutes of the book left. So next Sunday, I think we'll, I thought we were going to finish this Sunday, but we didn't. But next Sunday, it looks like we're going to finish this off. So 6 p.m. Pacific time, we'll be back here next Sunday to finish off Mrs. Miracle. And then, like I said, uh, the following Sunday, we're going to be reading from The Ghost of Flight 401. So it was great to have you guys here. I was real glad to read for you. In fact, I'm enjoying these Sundays with you guys. And I hope to see you next week. And uh, tomorrow, we're back on our regular schedule with California Haunts Radio. And we've got a really cool guest. His name is um, Doug Anderson. And he and his wife and his paranormal team from North Carolina 
have been inve- have been investigating the battleship USS North Carolina, which is supposed to be really, really actively haunted. And uh, they've got a lot of evidence they're going to be sharing with us from that ship. So, uh, and, and that's some video that we're also going to be able to see. So thank you guys for coming. I really appreciate it. And I will see you tomorrow, okay? Bye-bye.